Great Sugar Booger, ladies and gentlemen, season four of Chewing the Gristle. We've got some magnificent guests queued up and ready to roll. Of course, Chewing the Gristle, it's guitar-oriented, but we talk about whatever. Can you dig it? And this glorious broadcast, if you will, is brought to us by our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing you such a variety of glorious instruments, it'll tempt your mind, body, and soul. And our friends at Fishman Transducers, beautiful Andover, Massachusetts, providing all kinds of -of state-of-the-art accoutrement to take your acoustic instrument and fire it up to blast people's brains into submission. And of course, their pickups, especially those with the Gristletone moniker, are fantastic! Let's get to it, folks! This week on Chewing the Gristle, we have the amazing and talented Luther Dickinson. You've seen him with the North Mississippi All-Stars with the Black Crows. I just got done doing some gigs with him with the Allman Family Revival. Great guitar player, musician, producer, and human Luther Dickinson this week on Chewing the Gristle. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's time once again to engage in a little chewing of the gristle. We have the mighty (laughs) Luther Dickinson here, guitar player extraordinaire, wrangler of the highest order from the Northern Mississippi All-Stars with his brother Cody and an illustrious crew of individuals. I've recently engaged in spirited convivial musical congress with him with the Allman Family Revival. He's been in everything from the Black Crows to the Phil Lesh Ensemble, if I'm not mistaken. And here we are conversing via the Internetski <laughs> on, this, on this day before the day before New Year's. Luther, how the hell are you? What's up? <laughs> How's it going? How, how are your holidays? They're really groovy, man. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be amongst you and company. Well, it's a pleasure. Now you did the whole almond tour, right? The whole, all, the all, how many dates was it all together? Johnny and I, uh, we tag teamed. He took the first week in Florida and then, uh, I took over in at the beacon in New York through Denver. And then he took the West coast cause stats is a West coast guy and he's Got Dwayne's it. partner. He's the OG, you know? Right. Now, how did you first get hooked up with that? The whole, Revival, man, my um, Cody and our father, Jim, he was a piano player and a record producer. And in 1970, he worked, he worked for Atlantic and uh, worked in a rhythm section for Jerry Wexler and Tom Dowd. And they were down in criteria while the Almond brothers were recording and while Derek and the Dominoes were recording. So uh, I grew up hearing stories of Dwayne Allman as if he was a family friend folk hero. You know, my mom would talk about crazy old Dwayne, you know, and, <laughs> and literally the, when, um, in like 90 or 91, when the live at the Fillmore, uh, remastered double CD box came out, that changed my life. Literally. I literally remember sitting on my bed under the influence uh, thinking now that's what I want to do in my life. You know, I should have shot higher, but Hey, that's where I went. You know? <laughs> and, and we grew up playing with our dad and his generation. Like they didn't let us play my father and his friends. They didn't let us join in until we earned our stripes until sure. we deserved it, you know, cause they took it real seriously. But you know, and then we played with our father 
until he passed. And, you know, most of my friends, my whole community is based of, of second, third generation musicians. It's just, we kind of flocked together. And so I don't know, we became, became friends with Devin. I'm just known Dwayne uh, through the circuit. And um, it's just an easy, you know, you know how musicians are. It's just a, it's just an easy hang. It's like old friends, fast friends and playing with those guys. It's literally a dream come true. I mean, to stand there next to Dwayne Betts, who favorite looks like his father yeah, <laughs> and looking bit, over right? at Devin, who looks like his uncle. Right. He looks like, more like Dwayne, right? It's crazy. And he plays like Dwayne too. He's got a thing. And it just really blows my mind. And, and it's just such a dream come true. I got to sit in. Warren was so gracious and he would let me sit in with the brothers. And that was a joy. I mean, to stand there and hear Greg Allman sing. Right. But it's another thing to play with the the second generation. It, it really warms my heart. Well, it's an awesome thing. I was glad to be in, included. And, in you know, I have, uh, it's an Almond Brothers fanatic from the get-go as well. And, um, yeah, I remember the, my introduction really was uh, back in the day when um, I, I saw the Allman Brothers Band in 1981, I'm going to say, at uh, at the Summerfest in Milwaukee. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget it because I just started playing guitar and the Nighthawks opened up with Jimmy Thackeray. And, yes. he, blew my, and he blew my mind, right? Oh, yeah. And I just remember it's like that was the greatest strat tone, and and he would and he would do like the little Hendrix uh, kind of g-string dive bombies into a, a blues cluster lick of of sorts, and I just loved it. And then the Allman Brothers came on, and uh, it just blew my mind. And I remember I went home, and I scoured through my siblings' records because uh, I was the youngest of seven, and of course my older siblings had all the records from when they first came out. Perfect. And, and uh, I found Live at the Fillmore, and, and I just, that was, I had a similar, just absolutely, um, it was one of those things, it was like, this is everything I love. It's blues, it's it got, you know, jazzy inflections, it's got a little bit of that country that, that's got the slide, and Greg Allman's singing like a fiend, and I just became obsessed. Um, and, and the it, songs are great. And the songs are great, absolutely. They are literally great songs. Yeah, obsessed, man. It's a thing, isn't it? How old were you again? Uh, well, in 1980, I would have been, what, 14? Oh, like the magic. 14, 15 years old. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That era yeah. before you get your driver's license. That's the golden. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, I remember uh, in 1981, there was a uh, a guitar player magazine uh, edition that was entirely Dwayne Allman, you know, commemorating the the 10th year of his passing. And I think and I, I have that. that. That inspired me beyond all belief because just everything about it was just, he just seemed all about music. There was no, there was no, and for me, it was one of those things where back in that era, I mean, I know it's probably different for, for you in a way because, you know, you're a tad younger, but in that era. Just a few years, just a few years. But to me, it was like everyone that was my age, no one was really hip to that stuff. They were all like, you know, uh, into the stuff at the time, which would have been like, you know, Van Halen. Not that there's anything wrong with any of that, but you know, that they, they were more. So it, it was like my little Island, you know what I mean? That I yes. just, it was like, this is, this is the world that I want to be in. And growing uh, up with my dad's record collection, I was real lucky to have a very timeless journey through 
eras, you know, because like I remember he pointed at his record collection. I was like, there is a wealth of knowledge here. It wasn't that big, but it was potent, man. Yes. And of course, live at the Fillmore, uh, Jimmy's concerts, the Red record, the Jimi Hendrix record. Oh yeah, oh, the live. Oh, yep. oh, that's still my, one of my favorites. But um, but you know, and then he would point me and like say. Uh, Roy Orbison, Ubi Doobie, you know, he's like, I learned this when I was in high school, except for the fast lick, you know, he's like, you should learn Ubi Doobie, you know, it's like, you should learn, you know, Chuck Berry is like, you need to learn your teeny Hodges. Like it was a, a vocabulary, but I would always, I would go through, like, I discovered SST records and black flag when I was 12. And that really spoke to me, you know, I had the sex pistols, but, but I really love the black flag riffs. But then I'd go, you know, and then I'd travel, you know, back into the Almer Brothers or back into Jimi Hendrix. And then yeah. uh, I was always a- attracted to modal music, be it like, um, you know, kind of blue, which you hear all over the Almond Brothers influence. Right. right. Um, or or uh, Indian classical music or, or you know, some funky modal uh, funk jazz. Or um, when I discovered Hill Country Blues, I was like, oh, my God, this is modal blues. And it's the primitive the harmonic primitiveness makes it sound more modern at, at that but that's later in the game but uh yeah it was a funny journey man because for me i had hendrix first right uh, i hit hendrix really young i saw that first documentary the ones with the twins you know like yeah, oh, they yeah. took the alpha jerk you know so they fuck it i'll take the jerk you right. know how did i'm Jimi <laughs> hendrix maybe i could die you know, <laughs> exactly. I remember all of that. Yep. Dude, it's so, I mean, it's so classic. I saw that on a, a public television when I was single digits with my dad. He was like, oh, I was like, what is that? You're like, oh, right. you like that? <laughs> so they turned me on. And then the Almond Brothers. But I had my dad's records. Like I had uh, uh, the, the Dwayne Almond Anthology oh, I had some one, of the yeah. tracks that my dad played on. And it had the double gatefold that opened up with the long picture of the brothers. And He's it's got uh, the SG. Yes. And and it's so mind-blowing because behind the drums are all the amps. And much later, I asked Jamo, I was like, Jamo, all those speakers behind the drums, like, what the hell was coming through those speakers? Jamo was like, loud-ass guitar. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the journey was long. But it's, Almond Brothers and Jimi Hendrix were always... And then Mississippi Fred McDowell and R.L. Burnside, those are those four, you know, kind of summed up where I, I and finger picking a Ry Cooter, Ry Cooter. My dad played with a Ry Cooter. Yes, I remember and that. So open tuning, slide, finger picking was always part of the guitar for me. It wasn't like a new thing. It's like, oh, wow, you could play slide or oh, wow, you could play open. Like when I got my first guitar, Dad challenged me to learn three chords, but then later my mom was like, "Why don't you just tune it open for him?" So she, t- so they tuned it open and showed me Bo Diddley. And man, I was, I'm You're still open right tuning. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask you how the, um, you know, having a father who's an iconic music industry person can either, I'm sure, it was a combination of being tremendously you know, inspiring and cool, but at the same time, off-putting in some ways. And I'm just wondering what that journey was like for you and how it changed as you got older. You know, it's a funny thing because it's it's such a funny balance of like, it's normal. You know, you're just a kid. You know, right. it's like your dad's a rock and roller. Uh, uh, but you learn quickly not, you can't really talk about it with your friends because they just don't understand. And, and right. it doesn't feel as cool. So you just keep it to yourself, you know. 
really young. And then growing up, you know, there's a sense of like total respect and, and, and pride and admiration. I mean, dad was my best friend and my, you know, just a hero. But then also there's definitely a little sense of entitlement that you later have to deal with, you know, because that's the great thing about being a second, third generation musician is that you see, you just see it's possible. It's the same as if your dad was a chef or a, a carpenter or an architect, you know, you just see the path, you know, it's right. possible. And that helps, you know, my brother was a natural musician. I was not a natural musician. I had a natural creative process that I can apply to whatever I do, be it writing a song or putting together a record or starting a band or finishing uh, or, or improvising, you know, I have a creative process, but I was not natural. And dad was very brutal with me. He was like, you cannot play and I'm not going to bullshit you. You know, I'm not going to tell you, you can play the concept of being able to play. Uh, I've learned from the, that era of session musicians was very serious. You know, you could either play or you couldn't play. And, but yeah, you know, I just kept working at it. My advantage was I knew what I wanted to do. I always knew I wanted to play guitar and I just kept at it and just believed it and knew it. So it worked out for me. And it's funny. It, music is ever humbling. You know, I don't care who you are. I think, I believe that there will be times where music, you know, humbles you. And I think that's a good thing, you know, no doubt. But, I mean, my, my brother was a natural musician. I learned so much from him. He could play any instrument. He could have been any, he could have done anything, science, computers, whatever. But, but, you know, I grew up, with Eric Gales, man, Eric Gales has been kicking my ass in Memphis since I was like 14, you know, 15. And then, uh, you know, there's always a better guitar singer, you know, but you have to learn to do your thing. You know, I don't know. I think I got off, I got off track, but no, even no, it's be, all that's all good. <laughs> even talking to you is like humbling. Like, you know, you look at the musicians, the caliber of guitar players you talk to, I'm like, man, like, what do I have to offer? But I was thinking about it last night and I was like, well, I mean, the, the trick is just get up there and do your thing and be in the moment, you know, and you can't let it get to your head. You know, if you're standing there next to Derek trucks or, or whoever, you know what I mean? Right. Well, yeah, that's, my, that's definitely a thing. I mean, I, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I certainly understand the, uh, you know, when we were kids, I'm sure, I'm sure it was one of those things where you would discuss things with your other young friends, like, well, I think so-and-so's the best, but when you <laughs> said they were the best, it was because they were your favorite. You know what I mean? It's like, I would always say, well, Hendrix you know, would say, who do you think, who's your all-time favorite? I would say Hendrix. And it, and I remember I would have these discussions with, um, uh, this drummer buddy of mine who was like the biggest yes fan ever he was kind of more into that kind of prog rock scene so yeah. it's like he was all about steve howe you know he was really into king crimson he was and he turned me on to the dixie dregs which i really dug because there was like oh, all yeah. kinds of rootsy uh connections there but yeah you know, and, I, and i always liked um steve howe i mean how could you not he did, did some crazy thing but but that music didn't speak to me mm -hmm. as more the kind of blues imbued uh, stuff, especially Hendrix. And he would always say, well, Hendrix is no comparison to Steve Howe. And I would, I just have no <laughs> understanding what he was talking. About. I was like, yeah, you don't get it. It doesn't matter that Hendrix yeah. can't play the clap. But when he <laughs> plays a solo, it's like the crust of the earth opening up and like angels and demons dancing together yes. in a glorious, yes. <laughs> you yes. God knows what. Yes. And, and, and that was always the thing to me. It's like, well, who 
who can make the magic happen? You know, who makes it where, where you're, where you're, when you know what's happening, there's a, there's a magic weird connection that takes place and it, and it's irrespective of technical excellence. Sometimes it yes. involves technical excellence. Sometimes it doesn't, but it, you know, it also speaks to just that person being themselves. So it really does. I mean, when I think of Albert King, I mean, Albert King did one thing, but I want to hear that thing always, you know yes. what I mean? Yes. As opposed to somebody, you know, take someone completely different, like a, a really technically astute player, like, just, just grab one out of it, like Pat Martino. I love Pat Martino, yeah. but, I listen to, but I listen to Albert King exponentially more, you know, and it's not because Albert King's a better musician. Of course, he didn't have anywhere near the harmonic knowledge, but that magic thing happens. And I think that's what people mean. At least that's what I mean when I say my favorites, you know what I mean? Yes, totally, man. I, I've never been competitive by spirit. So I grew out of that type of argument. But it's funny, the type of, like, when I started listening to Black Flag, my kids at school who liked ACDC, they got so mad at me. Or later, when I was more of a hippie, hanging out with the punk rock scene in Memphis, they liked, they could deal with Skinner, but not the Allman Brothers. And now that makes sense. I never was a big Skinner guy. But the Allman Brothers, as aggressive as they were, and speaking of which, let's say that just before it's too late, the early Allman Brothers, that's so, they're playing so intensely and so hardcore. Right. But, but, but to come back all the way around. So like, I can't sit here and, and like bedazzle you with guitar licks. Like I don't really even have many licks that I play, but, but what I like to do is like, I'm only as good as the musicians I'm playing with. Like I, when it comes time to improvise, I just try to listen as hard as possible. And like, I'll just get in with the drums, you know? And cause I grew up playing with my, my brother, you know, like it, even if I'm doing a solo, I try to, I'm always thinking about it more rhythmically and trying to groove. And, and, you know, a new thing is like when the drummer uh, uh, goes for a fill, like that's the great time to take a breath. Like let him have that space to do his rhythmic expression and land it without cluttering it up. Cause you know, when you're younger, you're like, Ooh, I'm going to get in there with him. I'm going to, we're going to do it together. But anyway, right. Um, but I think that being in the moment and, and like really having an open instantaneous conversation with the other musicians and the audience um, can speak uh, for me. You know, I think that's something that, that I've uh, developed that that's, that uh, is better for me than like any technique or lack thereof. You know, I like watching the audience and like, if people are dancing, I'll play into the rhythmic motion and even the playing slide, I can play dance moves. uh, And then when someone like feels, if you're, Look, if there's a dancer and you're like musically illustrating their body rhythm and they feel it and look at you and they see you're looking at them, that is a now that's a kind of bizarre little moment. <laughs> anyway, I just like being in the moment with the other musicians and trying to do something. And I think maybe, you know, there's a validity in that just as Absolutely. much as having fancy licks. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but Hendrix, dude, man, you said it, angels and demons. Like, we talk about the feedback gods. Like, you know, Cass, like, my friends and I, oh, and you said it. Like, I learned as much from my peers growing up as my guitar teachers. And I had some great guitar teachers, including Sean Lane, who we can talk about. But but we would talk about Hendrix, man. And, like, like for us, like, we strive for just any one note of, of feedback where the note catches and you can manipulate it and it just blossoms. But right. Hendrix, it was like, 
just the feedback gods were just just like there chaos was there at any point he could it could just open up and he was just always just tamp damping it down like okay stay back i'm not ready for it yet here we go right but man to be able to manipulate the chaos of the feedback so musically that as he did man frusciani i man the return of frusciani has been so good for me and to hear him speak on these types of things are so beautiful he's so well-spoken and thoughtful um and he's a great uh, disciple of the Hendrixian school, you know. Yes. But for me, I, later to jump down, you know, I got into Hill Country Blues and finger-picking country blues, like Fred McDowell and R.L. Burnside. R.L. Burnside's acoustic work is very, he's a very powerful acoustic guitar finger-picker. But I wanted to, we started this band to, like, play Fred McDowell and Burnside with a rock and roll trio. And I wanted to get an electric guitar loud as hell that I could finger pick and have it respond like an acoustic, you know, and that's been a whole journey in and to itself. But when it comes time to improvise, I like to have the slide respond as if it was Hendrix's feedback whammy bar, you know? Like yeah. if I can, so that's always been a, a little angle for me. Like if I, if I can make my slide feel like Hendrix's uh, whammy bar, then I, I feel like I'm getting somewhere. <laughs> So when did you go from uh, living in Memphis to to dwelling in Nashville? And what was that uh, transition like? Oh, from Memphis to Nashville? That yeah. was all for my kids. You know, I guess that was in uh, 2010. Okay, no, so- no, it was, it was later, 2000. And, mm, it was much later. Because once we started, we lived in, in rural Mississippi. And, oh, okay. um, and uh, once we started dealing with school, and we were commuting to Memphis, you know, we had to rethink everything. And we, we sold our little place and, and moved to town. And we'd already lived in Memphis off and on, my wife and I, in uh, Nashville. It's, it's a, such a great uh, community of, of musicians, man. There's so many musical families. It's a very shared experience for my wife and, and the kids, you know, because, you know, I'm gone a lot, you know. And, I'm, and uh, so it's, uh, it's nice for her not to be the only one, you know what I mean, yeah, dealing yeah, with yeah. that. But it's a happy, prosperous place full of great musicians and infrastructure. And I'm uh, still three minutes from home. Three, uh, three hours. Three I hours still from home. I got you. work yeah, a lot yeah. in Memphis at Royal Studios and uh, our Zebra Ranch studio in Mississippi. I still go there. To, I love the geography. Like I have a long-term New Orleans project that I only work on when I'm in New Orleans. Or if I'm going to record some Mississippi music, I find it's best to go to Mississippi to record it, you know. So it's good. I'm bi-coastal, baby. I got the studio in Mississippi and my place here in Nashville. So how much producing do you do on a for other people on a, on a regular basis? I love it more and more. Um, I've, it took me a while to really... What I do... G-Love, we just made a great record with G-Love. And um, he said my production style was gentle. And um, I think that's a good word for it. My dad was like very domineering producer, like my way or the highway. This is, you know, um, and I'm, I'm, I learned a lot from him, but also I'm, I'm more gentle about it. And, uh, but I feel confident enough to, to do it. I'll, I'm working with uh, Devin and Donovan right now and I do it as much as possible. I love producing. I really feel like, cause I feel so alive in the heat of the moment of making records. It's like your instincts and your, your past experiences all go into these split second decisions. 
And it's just, ooh, it's just like electricity crackling, you know, like when it's really happening and you're just trying to to to, to get a good take and, and preserve the spirit, you know. One thing I try to do is not, I'll tell people what not to do, but I I don't like it when producers or musicians tell musicians what to do, you know. So right. I try to keep people from, you know, crushing each other's spirit, you know, and, and protect the integrity of everyone's, creative spirit in the moment and the collaborative process of getting a good take, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So in, you know, production is such an interesting thing in terms of some people are, I mean, I'm like, I'm curious, are you like the engineer as well? Or do you always like to have an uh, extra engineer? Are you pretty well versed in, in, in getting the mixes you want yourself or how I'm always fascinated by that because some people like to just have the engineer do their thing and kind of tells them what to do and other people can do it all right right um in this day and age you know those producers are the guys getting the big bucks but no i like the, the engineer you know i like to have an engineer i'm right i only started really recording myself during uh, 2020 you know like i i relied on the process of uh, the partnership with the engineer you know for really way too long um, cause, oh man, it's so freeing to be able to record yourself and, you know, and, and to spend all that time with the click track, you know, I mean, you know, you say, yeah, I practice to a metronome, but if you record yourself a lot, it really helps. It's, you talk about humbling, <laughs> right? recording yourself. Whoa. But, um, yeah, I wish, uh, but I don't, I don't know. I like, I like being on, even if I'm not playing, I try to avoid playing. Uh, but uh, I like being in the on the tracking floor, you know, with the musicians um, as it's going down. I don't want to be a, the engineer as well. And you know, I, don't call me if you're trying to make a fancy rock record or some pop record or you know something real slick. But if you want to make some organic roots music, you know, with a group of people playing and singing, you know, together all at once, you know, let's get it on. Yes, sir. <laughs> You know, I was recalling the other day when, you know, we dug up that footage of that um that guitar of yours with the P90s and the and the uh the 335 with the P90s and the Bigsby on it. Is yeah. that something you still play a lot in the All-Stars as opposed to the the 335 with the humbuckers you're playing with the the Revivalians? You know, uh, I pulled out the, that was I had my first 325 that the Black Crows brothers gave to me and my SG uh, my favorite SG um, on the Almond Family Revival tour that you speak of. Cause you know, I was playing straight up second guitar with Dwayne Betts and uh, you, you know, that's a Gibson party. You know, you got, I just felt I had to have the proper tools for that job. And Oh man, through this super like cranked up. Uh, it's, it really is a special thing. Like a super on eight to nine, you know, with a Gibson. Oh, it's that, that isn't quite an experience. But, um, but, uh, that signature Gibson that we did, the Luther Dickinson, it's a, it's a semi hollow. It's like a three, two, five with P90s, as you said. And, uh, it was an experiment and it's a beautiful guitar, but it didn't get, it didn't do it for me. And, um, I have one, it's actually in the Memphis music museum for a year. I have one, but I don't use it very much. If I'm going to do P90s, I like to go full hollow. We designed a second guitar right after that that they couldn't put my name on uh, for Gibson politics at that point in time if you weren't, you know, a, a 
really famous, they weren't going to put your name on a guitar. But we did the polar opposite, and it came out as the uh, 330L, and it's full hollow. It's a 335 with a Bigsby that's full hollow with humbuckers. Now that baby, it's black too. It's beautiful black. Now that baby, you talk about feedback, it, it can, oh man, it catches the feedback so beautifully. And um, so I did one P90 semi and then I did a full hollow with humbuckers. Um, and uh, to me, the full hollow with humbuckers, the 330L, that was the one that caught on for me. Gotcha. So are you a, uh... Do you have the bug as far as guitars are concerned? Do you find yourself always procuring new things and getting rid of this to get that and that kind of yes, thing? Yes, of course. <laughs> and of course, you know, I used to just collect, 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 but now I'm in my, you know, I'm about to turn 50 and, uh, you know, my kids, uh, I got to, and the quarantine, man, I sold so many guitars during the, the lockdown and, um, I'm still selling instruments, you know, uh, and, it just feels good to lighten the load. And if I don't use it, get rid of it. But yeah. And you know, I like uh, inexpensive guitars. I really always have like those little Gretsch acoustics, a little parlor size acoustics. Oh, I love that one. Yeah. The little like what? Everybody has one. Uh, they're fantastic. Sitting right there, right? Yeah. Look it <laughs> yeah. over. There it is. <laughs> I just got a, a new uh, recording King, uh, like $400 Reza. Oh, yeah. Killer. Yeah, yeah. I love yeah. inexpensive guitars, but man, what I, so this is a long story, but, I'll make it short, but I, after years and, okay, so I always wanted to have an electric guitar loud as hell that responded like an acoustic that I could finger pick and have it feel like an acoustic. Um, but then I fell in bed with Gibson and I just stayed that route, be it, be it like vintage P90s, um, which are, are, are close or newer guitars, Les Pauls or 335s or whatever. But recently, man, I fell under the spell of the wide range pickup, man. The Fender oh, Humbucker yeah. is utterly unique. It truly is a wide range frequency response. And the mid range is much cleaner. You know, there's there's heavy thumping lows and beautiful high end, like kind of like a hi-fi Rikuder type of vibe. It's kind of like a gold foil, like a Diarmin gold foil, but more civilized. Yeah, yeah. And uh and after selling so many instruments, my friends and I, we've been, uh, Steve Selvage, my, uh, one of my best friends, he turned me on to parts casters, man. And the Lawler Regal, which is the Lawler wide range. And man, I've got so many strats and tellies that we're just uh, screwing together and throwing funny pickups in, but mainly my whole new sound, uh, is based on the wide range pickup and, uh, having daughters really changed at the same time. I, I left the Black Crows and I started playing with Phil Lesh and studying the the Grateful Dead. I uh, stayed away from the Grateful Dead my whole life. All my friends loved it. And I definitely, whenever the tours would happen, I would definitely indulge in the, <laughs> you know, we would, I took advantage of the parking lot culture for sure. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, I, ne- I stayed away from the music my whole life. Um, it was just all Hendrix and the Allman Brothers for me. And, uh, but then later with Phil Lesh, I had to learn the music and um, I'd also had daughters. And my daughters have a very adverse reaction to distorted guitar. They huh. really do not like it. And thankfully, their mom did. <laughs> but, <laughs> but my girls really cleaned up my tone. And uh, I really try to make have a... I also, I can't remember who said this, but I saw a clip on YouTube. It was like a rig rundown. 
was a British guitar player. And I, I wish I could find it, but he was like, you know, if it doesn't, if it sounds like shit, it's shit. And like, if it doesn't sound good, it's not good. And I'm like, wow, that is so basic. And it really helped me because all through my youth, you know, when you're young, you get on stage and the adrenaline and the youthful, you know, you just push through it, even if it sounds like shit, you know, you just push through it and whatever. But that statement made me really learn to be in the moment and do whatever it takes to center myself and be usually technique and state and state of mind to play with a nice sound, make it sound good, no matter what, you know, and uh, that really helped me out. And having the daughters and then the wide range pickups, man, it tr- truly changed my whole uh, tone and approach and everything. And Gibson was an obvious choice for an electric guitar that feels like an acoustic. But I got to say, man, the Fender aesthetic comes at it from a whole nother angle and almost reaches it in a better way. Like you can finger pick a Fender uh, and it, it just feels right. And the long, the longer scale. Long scale yep. Yeah. The intonation is so, so such a relief to be able to get closer to being in tune, you know? God. Right. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is you meant, you mentioned the deck because you know, when we were, doing those gigs uh i you had mentioned to me you're like you ever get into the dead much and i and i was like yeah which my standard answer is i always had a soft spot for jerry like i'd, I'd hear little snippets of jerry and i I just like the way he played but as as yes. a band it's like i'd hear some stuff and say okay well i get this and then i'd hear some other stuff like what the fuck is this? You know what I mean? What is this meandering fuckery? You know what I mean? And then I'd hear other stuff. It's like, no, this is, oh, wait a minute. What is this? I've never heard this, you know? And, uh, and then I was talking to Dwayne uh, Betts and I was like, so, you know, where did your dad get those like fiddle licks? Was that, was that something? He's like, well, his old man was, his old man played fiddle. And so he got that, but you know, there's a lot of Jerry in, in Dickie's plan. And I'm like, yeah, I can hear that. So then I, I so since we were together a couple of weeks ago, I've been listening to a bunch of different dead stuff. And, um, and it's, and it's the same experience. Like I'm, I'm discovering stuff like, well, what's this? And then I'll listen to like another live thing. And there's times where I'm listening to this going, there's a stadium full of people listening <laughs> to this shit. <laughs> but then jerry will do something like i love that tone like that middle tone and he's doing those kind of you know fiddly little bit of django that chromatic stuff and those little glissando gl- uh, you know glissando things and i'm i'm in you know what i mean that's all good so i'm so i'm gleaning from it some inspiration as as i do with a lot of stuff where i do the deep dive and i find what right. inspires me about it and then i leave the rest you know what always fascinates me though is because I'm always because I, I don't know it's it's one of my one of my things that apparently I have to get through in this particular incarnation is I, I just have a <laughs> I just have a, uh, a a big kind of cynical skepticism of, of any kind of group think you know what I mean and anytime uh, you're not any, a joiner <laughs> I am not an I'm a contrarian almost to a fault yeah and, uh, <laughs> And, and that's, I think that's the thing that always turned me off about the dead to begin with. It's like, you know what, if it's about music, I'm all in, but if it's just about the periphery, then I'm, then I don't give a shit. And so, 
uh, you know, and that's been part of the thing about the dead, but with all kinds of different stuff, like I would always get into, and I've talked about this with uh, a lot of folks, because I'm, I'm a Zep head from, from way back as well. And, and there's times where it's like from 75, really end of 73, 75 on, like, you know, vitamin H was flowing and the live performances got real dodgy. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I, I still listen to a bunch of those bootlegs and, and that the crowd's going crazy and, and, and you realize, and it kind of reminded me of another thing that, that Clapton said when, when he realized that cream was going to be no more, he's like, one time we were going to go on stage and all the amps just went on and made a bunch of noise for a second and then stopped and the crowd went crazy. He goes, and I realized right then and there that we could play whatever and no one, and they, people would love it without even discerning what it was. And so I've always had this, this thing about, you know, that, that point where people, uh, get it for what it really is in terms of this musical expression versus the groupthink thing. Yeah. And not that there's anything high and mighty about, about a procession, but it's almost to me, it's like, you know, I don't even know how other people listen to stuff, how they're processing the information. I have no clue. I know what I do. And I, and, and that can change. I mean, there's times where I'll look back, like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do a deep dive on someone that I initially just brushed off because I sensed some kind of, perceived uh disingenuousness you know what i mean yeah yeah totally and then but then i can reapproach it later and go well no i see what they're this this makes sense and i always got to connect the dots you know what i mean so for me it's just such a, a weird thing to you know to renegotiate you know something like listen to the dead and just try to get what i like about it me personally as opposed to just kind of being um you know, going along for the ride because, you know, like our music would be so, you know, with, with my particular trio now, really all the music I've done over the years, it has a home in, in jam world without yeah. a doubt. It's, right. it's, it's, it's in that world. But yet I, I refuse to kind of be the sycophant for that. You know what I mean? Right. Not that not saying other people are, it's just that I, I mean, I don't even party anymore. You know what I mean? I have right, been, right. been sober for decades. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I don't know what you're doing with the all this. Jam but, you know. band, the jam band culture, like, I don't know, it changed. And electronic music really changed what the idea of a jam band was. But back in the mm, late 90s, early 2000s, the heyday of jam band for me and really helped my career was that it didn't matter what genre you played. It was just like, if you could just improvise and just play in the moment and, and like go out on a limb and break it. And just like, it didn't matter if you could be bluegrass or you could be like, New York jazz, like MMW, or you could be New Orleans funk, like Galactic, or et cetera, et cetera. Right, it really, right, right. The genre didn't matter. Um, oh, man, like your your new record, uh, I, it's not out yet, but man, what was the one I heard that, that I listened to? That's the new one, right? That's the new one, yep, yep. Oh, dude, man, if that had come out, you know, if that had played Bonnaroo in 2004, you know what I mean? <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, I know what you mean, man. My problem is, I think growing up with MTV, I was so addicted to it, but it was a love-hate relationship. I was force-fed all this music, and I was so addicted to it, but I disliked most of it just out of having a bad attitude, you know? And I wouldn't wouldn't catch on to things until they were over, you know? That's a big one for me. But, you know, back from the my journey of the dead, just real quick, the two things that that really appealed to me after going in is like jerry he's like my dad's generation like he was a beatnik he wasn't a hippie he was a pre-hippie you know he was a head he was a beatnik 
a bohemian and and you know like jack kerouac or, or you know charlie christian like he swung right he had old school pre-rock and roll swing you know like you know and uh, louis jordan or chuck berry or or charlie christian or whoever and and there was so you could hear Doc Watson, Mississippi John Hurt. Just look at the repertoire, and you could tell the old timey records he listened to, the jug band music, and it's like all the stuff my dad listened to. So coming for me, coming to Jerry, uh, learning the material, but I had very similar influences, which was very helpful because I was, I had I had the same influences that he had. I wasn't just influenced by him. You know what I mean? So sure, it was like exactly. my my musical tree reached over and grabbed his musical tree as opposed to just being a branch, you know? I got you. Yep. But, but then, so I did a lot of West coast shows with Phil, but when we finally went to the East coast, you know, the people were dancing, but what blew my mind and what made me really see was everyone was singing along. I was like, right. Oh my God, it's the lyrics. It's like, it's, it's the lyrics. And then, so and I went back in and the Robert Hunter lyrics He's a true bohemian beat poet, you know, like right. on a par with with Bob Dylan. And uh, the characters that he brought into our consciousness are, you know, just true Americana, uh, you know, really American dream uh, uh, literature. And the, and the melodies, too. All the squirrely odd times and drop bars and, and weird musical devices. Right. It, it, they only use it to make the the melody and the lyrics uh, seem very smooth. You know, if you learn it, if you know how to sing it, then it's really an easier way to learn the dead music. But if you don't pay attention to the lyrics and you're just learning and counting bars and beats, it can get all mathy. But it's really all about smoothing out the vocals, very much like Delta and Hill Country Blues. Right. You know, like where any eighth note could be the one at any time. <laughs> That was a big one for me, learning my friend R.L. Boyce. We'd sit on the another friend, Otha Turner's front porch, and we'd play guitars, and he'd be stomping eighth notes with his cowboy boots. I'm like, why is he stomping eighth notes? But then I realized it's because he's dropping eighth notes. It's like if you're counting, you know, if you're playing to a four pulse, you're going to get flipped over because he's dropping beats all the time. Uh-huh. But anyway... So the dead and aesthetically the 71 and 72 stuff is where I always go to that. Yeah, that's, that, you know, that's kind of where I dwelt yeah. in, my, in my deep dive. The early stuff has a beautiful Gibson tone, like a Santana kind of distorted, but this, but when he got that strap, that's when it really came together. Well, I listened to, I think last night when I was going to sleep, I was listening to the, uh, the live 69 thing. And yeah, the, the, his SG tone is beautiful on there, but they yes. open up with, they're opening up with that dark star tune. And it's like, <laughs> it's meandering. And I'm like, is there a groove happening here? I don't know. It's like, they're all playing different shit. And then it like locks in for a minute. And I'm like, was that an accident? And, and then, <laughs> then it's like, it's like, no, this is minor. Oh, I see. They went major there. Oh no, that was an accident. You know what I mean? So it's, <laughs> You know, not to be a dick, but it's just like, what? And then other times I'll hear something and be like, man, this is, this is fucking great. This is really cool. And um, so, yeah, I guess it's just one of those things where you have so much material. Um, and, you know, every one of those concerts were recorded, you know, God knows how many different ways. And there's so much stuff out there. You're, you're going to hear all, all manner of different stuff. But, you know, I'm listening to the different studio albums. I'm like, I had no idea that they 
they did stuff like this. So it's 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 been an interesting it's been an interesting explore, shall we say. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Cock Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. Just to get off the dead, you yes. lived through, I was like 12, I guess, 1984. I mean, what the, a the year. year. The year I graduated from high school. Dude, come on. I mean, yeah, you know, 19, Van Halen, 1984. Uh, Purple Rain Prince, that yes. blue, I still adore, adore that that music and Prince. And it was so good. I'm forgetting something else too. It was a very powerful year. Well, I remember, uh, well, 83 Let's Dance came out and I mm. love that. Right? That's how I heard about Steve Ray Vaughan, but I love that Vaughan. Bowie record. I just love the Bowie record, you know? Yes. And then uh, Brothers in Arms, I think, came out 84, oh, maybe 85. Man. Um, the list you know, goes on and on. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I, although at the time, you know, I it's like I I was over Van Halen pretty quick, only because of my being repelled by groupthink. <laughs> you know, that that was really the thing. It's like the first Van Halen record came out, and I was uh, I was like eleven or something, and I was yeah. like, "Well, I gotta have this," you know. And I remember I had the first three Van Halen records, and then by the time I saw them on MTV, I was like. You know, there was something, I mean, this, this is all in the, you know, the, in the dysfunction I had back in the day, it has nothing to do with Van Halen, has to do with my, my diseased perspectives. But, um, you know, I, I mean, I thought of like Jimmy Page and I mean, those guys were scary. You know what I mean? Right. There was like, you know, Jimmy Page wasn't smiling at you. If he was, right. it was like, I'm going to steal your soul kind of a <laughs> smile. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then, and, and then you see the guys from Van Halen. They're like, "What? Are, what are they dressing like? It's some kind of weird pageant." And they're, you know, you know I just once I saw it, uh, David Lee Roth, I was like, "Nope, I, I can't. I just can't do it." <laughs> and, and then once everybody was like on board with the freaking bandanas and the and the whatnot, I was like, "No, fuck all that. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not in." And so, and then, and then the thing is what. With Prince, it was always such a weird thing because, you know, being from Milwaukee, it's like everyone from Minneapolis that I knew at the time. And again, this is my own dysfunction. This has nothing to do with reality in any way, shape or form. But, um, you know, they all thought that we from everyone in Wisconsin was a hillbilly. You know what I mean? Oh, we've got Prince. And I was like, fuck all that. And then and then and the reason why I didn't like because I I mean, it was so weird how I just responded to Purple Rain. It's like I didn't like the way that it sounded for me. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I just, the way that it sounded, it was just like, I don't get it. And then I always, you know, I, I thought everyone would always talk about his guitar playing. And I always was a f- super fan of the funk guitar playing, but I never liked his lead playing. And then when people would would compare him to Hendrix, you know, I'd be like, nope, sorry, <laughs> nope. Well, he, nope. he himself says he plays more like Santana than Hendrix. Like, right. You know, but he his- loved, but. Well, well, what about it. that while our guitar gently weeps? Now that you can't yeah, see, I, I, I'm I'm not with it. I'm just not with it. I just I love it. Hey, uh, just, so what it, were you into? I mean, if you're if you're not into metal in the mid '80s, right? As well, a I don't teen, know. Late I was, teenager, I was I was deranged. Well, my thought was is that 
you know, I was, there was something about how Hendrix played uh, yeah. and, and not like, and, and, and I didn't really even, I mean, sure the feedback stuff and all that, but I loved his clean, Ooh. you know, choking up on the pick, those kind of false harmonic-y, you know, his clean blues playing to me was the shit, you know? Yeah. And, and then Cream Era Clapton, the way that he played, I, I, there was something in the minutia of the vibrato and the tone and the intention that I thought that most people just didn't get, but for some reason I was getting it right. Awesome. And, and that I wanted to take that and I just wanted to push it down the field a little bit. I wanted to do like, you know, at the time I was like getting into like, you know, uh, those Schofield records with um, with uh, uh, Dennis Chambers and with Gary Granger, you know, Blue Matter and Loud Jazz. And, and I was getting into, you know, the, the Dixie Dregs and Steve Moore, the first Steve Morris album came out in 84. Um, and so I was thinking of, uh, I wanted to like Zeppelin to me was a band that's like, yeah, bonafide blues, bonafide rockabilly, this yeah. world music element, but yet with this, this um, irreverent kind of uh, no holds barred abandon. Right. And I just wanted to do that, but with these kind of more modern elements sprinkled in there, I still wanted that connection to all that old stuff to be. So I always was like in the process of always going back, always finding somebody and then trying to connect the, the dots back as far as I could go. Uh, and then just trying to add it to my own thing. And so when I got to you know, my problem with with the Van Halen stuff and the, a lot of the metal guys was is that they'd go, well, we go back to cream. I'm cool with that. But other people are like, well, I'm real old school. I go back to Zeppelin. I'm like, that's not old school, dude. I'm talking about Howlin' Wolf, baby. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and trying to connect it back to the, you know, and, and so that's that's where I kind of love it. But there was all kinds of cool stuff that was out that I just was oblivious to. You know what I mean? We're very like minded in that way, man. You know what blows my mind? the whole electronic music revolution was in my lifetime and I was completely oblivious. And anytime I it even came around me, I just blew it off. And it totally like now DJs are the rock and roll stars that we thought we were going to be, you know, it's exactly. like, what? but, and I like electronic music now. Some of it's amazing, but I missed the whole thing. Decidedly. I so I mean, Same even here. more than the Grateful Dead, I just like talk completely. And my father would buy me drum machines or synthesizers. I'm just like, whatever, you know, I've right. still yet to successfully hook up <laughs> a MIDI rig, like where all the keyboards are all oh, yeah. like synced no up. And like, what? That's not for me. Give me a, a I have no idea. Oh, man. Exactly. Hey, I mean, I so, miss I miss Rage Against the Machine. It's like my yeah. son got into it. I'm hearing these riffs. I'm like, oh my god, what? this is like this is like Zeppelin Zilla. You know what I mean? Good, good total, stuff. Totally missed it at the at that time. I was absolutely oblivious to it. Man, yeah, I, you know what you said about connecting the dots. I love doing that, man. And because you know we do a lot of uh, traditional folk music, and and I love. So like we have a song "Shake 'Em On Down" that was the first song on our first record, oh, yeah. and um, it's still probably one of our most known songs, but. I learned, um, I took Mississippi from McDowell's guitar riff. I took the chord changes from Buckle White. I took most of the lyrics from R.L. Burnside. And then my brother put like a 311 style beat on it. And then we right. put some samples on it. You know, it's like, and then, so we made our version. And that's like, I, I you know, that's how, if I'm going to learn a song, like say Mean Old World, which we recorded with Dwayne Betts on our last uh, uh, Up and Rolling. Yeah, Well, you took the riff from... Uh, from the Derek and the Dominoes. Yes. I, I got to tell you that story real quick, but 
I went back and I got one verse from B.B. King, one verse from, you know, Charles Brown. Like, you know, I didn't do the Derek and Domino verses because I found them kind of silly, but there's so many good ones out there. So it's fun going back and and picking and 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 seeing, you know, the, the, the oral history of folk of American music. It's so beautiful, like how a country song turns into a blues song, turns into a rock and roll song. And it goes all the way back to to Jimmy Rogers, the yodeling brakeman or whatever. Right, yo, right. So our okay, so I said my dad was down at Criteria. Right. You know, he said that you know, my dad was a connoisseur of wild lifestyle. You know, he <laughs> loved misbehaving and being a, a outlaw. And um and he said that the Derek and Domino session was the wildest, most over-the-top scene he'd ever witnessed. He couldn't believe. I mean, I won't go into the gory details. Oh, please do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he said that the grand piano and criteria A, they had the cocaine on the white keys and the heroin on the black keys. Like, that's hardcore. And they right. were going in like Derek and Clapton and Dwayne and Clapton were just going like, let's go, you know, come on. But um, anyway, you know, dad and Dwayne were friends. And uh, so, okay, long story short, they're making Derek and the Dominoes and Hendrix dies and they're all going to Hendrix's funeral. And Clapton hears that they want him to play. And Clapton was like, there's no way I'm playing at Jimi Hendrix's funeral. So he stayed behind. He stayed in Miami and the rest of the Dominoes went to the funeral. So that day it's Dwayne, Eric Clapton and my dad and they record me no world. And Ah. then the bootleg first bootleg came out and Tom Dowd, Muted the piano. And my dad was so sad, man. But oh. then when the Layla box set came out, the piano mix emerged. And once again, it was like, I don't know, early 90s. And so we've been playing that song ever since. Because if you look for the piano version, it's uh, uh, the two cats on acoustics and my dad on piano. So that's why we did that. Uh, that's that's awesome. our history with that song, you know. But yes, uh, man, oh, man. That, that's so, a wild tale. <laughs> hey, so speaking of connecting the dots, I mean, the elephant in the room, man. Come on, Derek Trucks, man. I mean, oh, yes. I mean, he, it's like Hendrix, you know, to me, like Hendrix is the Alpha and the Omega, you know, it's like, it's, he's just my favorite. And the right. same with jazz, Charlie Christian. I mean, I love Pat Martino. I love Wes Montgomery. I love uh, Kenny Burrell's my new, my new turn on. But man, yeah. Charlie Christian is insane. Yep. Alpha yep. and Omega, you know, it's yep. boom. Um, but man, Derek Trucks, I mean, it's such a before and after. Because, you know, long story short, when I first saw Derek, he was playing basically Coltrane. He was playing a lot of like, you know, 50s style jazz, modal jazz stuff with his band. Yep. Then he got into Indian classical music. Then we all got into Sacred Steel. Right. And then there's another one. And then and then he got into like Aretha Franklin and, and soul singing. And and that turned into the soul swamp stew of Tedeschi Trucks band, you know, like that whole that he just put it all together and made his own vernacular. Yes. It's so amazing. But it's such a before and after thing, man, because if you think about it, it's like you got Blind Willie Johnson, Robert Johnson. You know, Robert Johnson took what was came before him and took it to a new level. Elmore James. He plugged it in, you know. Uh, George Harrison played melody right. in pop music with a slide. You know, uh, what's another one? Uh, Derek and the Dominos, Live at the Fillmore. You know, boom. For a lot of years, that was the ultimate. Live at the Fillmore, it just sat right there. 
And that was as good as it got. But then, man, Derek, dude, I mean, he brought all those influences. And now there's a whole new generation of slide players who don't remember before Derek, you know, all the, all this, the whole new crop of players, (laughs) as Derek himself says, like-minded musicians, (laughs) 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 you know, they have a little sacred steel, a little Indian classical, a little, uh, John Coltrane in there because uh, that's where they learned from Derek, you know, and it truly is before and after he changed slide guitar forever. He did. Although I would, you'd have to put Sonny Landreth in that same. Oh yes. Yes. Dude, Sonny changed my life. Really, you know, technically, especially he, he added things to the whole lexicon. I remember the first time I heard Derek, I I loved him from the get, you know what I mean? It was just, Oh, me too. You know, it was one of those things where, how can you not? Exactly. I mean, it's just, it's just like, it's, it's a universally like this, this is something singularly special. And I remember I, the first time I heard it was when um, we did a recording down at uh, Johnny Sandlin's place back in nice. you know long, long time ago. And my, and my connection to Johnny Sandlin was uh, T Lavitz from the Dixie Drugs. T and I were buddies and T at that time was trying to help our band along that I had, I had this trio and then a four piece, um, that was mostly vocal oriented stuff that I did uh, with the, I had a drummer sang great and I sang some stuff. We had nice three-part harmonies, yada, 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 but we, it was also very jammy as well. And he's like, well, you know, Johnny is affiliated with Capricorn. And so he sent our record to it and Johnny was really cool about it and, and really liked our stuff. And actually um, uh, I got a call from this guy named Bunky Odom at one time, who was Derek's manager. Yeah, he's a legend. Yeah, and and about maybe being the other guitar player in this this kid's band. I mean, this is going back a long, long time ago. <laughs> and it never ended up, nothing ever happened other than this phone call that happened at one point long ago. But I remember I got a um a, a cassette tape from Johnny of uh of Derek's first record before it came out. Wow. And I and I remember just hearing it just going, man. I mean, you know, I I'm sure you were maybe, you know, maybe no, you were probably the right this about the same. I mean, it was so cool to hear Warren Haynes with the Almond Brothers do Dwayne sounding stuff. Yeah. And standard tuning. And it was awesome and, and inspiring. Right. But right. then you heard, but then Derek came along and it was like, wait a minute, there's this is this is a true evolution. I, exactly. Thank you. And, uh, yeah. And, and it was one of those things for me where it's like, uh, it almost didn't want you to make it like, well, there's no use doing that. Cause that's oh, exactly, <laughs> you know, exactly. And, and once again, it's like growing up with Eric Gales and Sean Lane, you know, it's like, wow, these guys kick my ass, but I got to keep doing what I do because exactly. I, that's, I have to, cause I have to do it. I wake up and go to sleep with a guitar in my hands, you know? Uh, but for me, Derek is like the, the challenge is to not be influenced by him, you know? Right. Right. You know, as much as I love him, but I can't, you know, and I've been that way, you know, with uh, Trey, like fish, like I can't listen to a lot of Trey, man. He's really, he's, he's a smooth operator, man. And there's so many musicians that were influenced by him, you know? Right. I, I, I'm very, like, if I listen to too much reggae, I'll think, Ooh, I need to make a reggae record. I'm very easily influenced. So I have to be careful what I put in. Right. I understand. You know, what's interesting, getting back to the Derek thing, I, I don't know how many years ago now, it seems like it's been a while, but I, you know, I would hear 
And I, I'd always did, I mean, I would do slide stuff in different tunings on records and whatnot, but live I never really did because it was a pain in the ass, right? To have yeah. an extra guitar and, or to tune it, you know. At the That's my bag right there. I'll take three or four guitars at every gig. Well, now I'm starting to do that a bit more and have some different tuning. But at the time, I was like, everything had to be in standard tuning. And um, and there was only so much I was going to do because I was like, you know, well, my thing is these other things and this is part of the thing, but it's not my main thing. And then at one point, you know, I would hear recordings of Derek and I'd hear things. I'm like, God, that is so awesome. How is it possible? And then at one point I, th- I said, well, you know, I, I, I'm sorry. I don't believe in divine right of kings. I don't believe in, you know, <laughs> you know, the, things that are only capable by a few. It's like, if it can be done, it can be done. Right. Right. So, right. so I, so I sat down at one point and I remember I was, I was tackling one of those kind of East Indian things that I can't remember what it's called, but it's a, he does that medley of those two East Indian type of songs. And, and I sat down, I was trying to play it with regular slide. And I was like, how is it possible for me to get those pitches so right on? And then what I started to do is I started fretting with the slide. I'm like, oh, well, this is how you get those things. And all of a sudden I realized that if you just press down with the slide for a split second, you know, you can get all those pitches spot on. And then I started to hear him. It sounded to me like he was doing that. And I was like, wait a minute. This is how it's done. This is how you don't fuck up with slide. You broke the code. Nobody talks about that. Derek, he admits to using low action. Yes. You know, he, he says that. Paul, I was just listening to Paul Gilbert and, and Corey Wong last night, the new podcast that just popped out. and. Yes. And Gilbert's a crazy side player, man. Yes, yes. And uh, he, but and uh, he likes high action. But he was talking about how uh, you know Derek talks about the. You can hear Derek. He does like he'll slide up, and and it's a chromatic run, like yeah. And uh, he really uses, but that's genius, man. He's fretting with the slide, yes, to put the pitch right on. And, and, uh, And then I remember when I when I figured it out, I did this podcast with with Jude Gold, and it was a video podcast, and we posted it. And, uh, and there was, and I remember I got a hold of, uh, you know, Jimmy Herring has been a buddy for years through T. Lavis, actually. Yeah. I, I was wondering I te- about that. And I, and I texted him. I was like, Jimmy, is, am I talking out of my ass here? Or is this what he's doing? And Jimmy saw the video and he goes, man, I don't know if that's what he's doing or not. But he goes, but I think you cracked the code. <laughs> you cracked the code, dude. And then, and then, uh, Jason Shadrick from premier guitar magazine got a hold of Derek and said, Hey, you know, this guy's doing this video saying that you're sliding. He goes, well, I don't know if I'm doing that, but I think I'm going to start. <laughs> but, he, but he definitely sounds like he, that he's doing it. But what I realized is, is that, you know, once you start doing it, then all of a sudden muscle memory takes over and you don't even have to do it anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, it's. It, but what's so wild about that is that once your ear gets tuned to those microtonal, you know, as you yes. said, those kind of Aretha Franklin-y type of. Yeah. Uh, uh, pentatonic runs, a lot of which are, you know, uh, horizontal on the string, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's my jam, horizontal playing. Exactly. And once you get, once your ear gets used to that, man, it's, it's like you get tuned up. And when you listen to other slide stuff now from back in the day, you can really hear out of, out of tune it is. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. It's, it's a crazy thing. So then it came to the point where, Microtones are so beautiful, man. There's so much information, like just between the major third and the, and the second, 
so much em- emotional content to, you know, and of course, Albert King, once you get her vibrato or, right. you know, is you don't have to play slide to use it, you know, obviously between the, the uh, fourth and the fifth, you know, the, the sixth and the seventh, the seventh to the one, you know, or, yeah, I mean, it's so much in there. And what I figured out, listen to Fred McDowell, because I went from playing with Sean Lane he was my guitar teacher. Then we were his backing band Jesus. and, uh, and we had to learn the powers of 10 record and the, also the stuff he was doing at Jonas Hoberg. But so I really, it was when I really tuned to my ear, but then we got burned out and we, my brother and I quit. And that's when I went into Fred McDowell hardcore. And my, I had learned, I was able to, you know, for myself, transcribe it for myself. And I learned, it's like, man, there are microtone tones that he's hitting every time. Like he, it's more than 12 notes for Fred McDowell. You know, right. I was like, how is he? What is that note? I can't find it. And it's in the cracks. I'm like, right. he hits it every time. But anyway, uh, this gives me chills. I just, and you know, a uh, beautiful thing about slide is uh, uh, being able to have vibrato that goes flat as opposed to always shaking it sharp, you know? Right. That, that's a beautiful thing. You know, Derek's a trip because he sound when he plays fingers, it sounds like he's playing slide. For me, I try to have, a, a whole separate style when I play fingers. Like I'm not trying to play bluesy slide or whatever. When I play with my fingers, I like more of a rhythmic approach and more like, I don't know. I just, I, I suck, but whatever, you know, but I like to have two different styles, be it fingers or, no or, or slide, but man playing, you mentioned Sonny Landreth. I'm so glad because he changed my life. I'm so addicted to playing behind the slide. Yep. And of course he does the chords and the suspensions and stuff. Um, and I learned that working for John Hyatt, but I've started using it in my lines, you know, like just states for blues, you know, just like if you're an open, you know, it's like you're right there and then everything else is a whole step behind, you know, but you can, if you fret, I just, fret behind the slide constantly. Same here. And, I do it all the time. And isn't it nice to have those true pitches come out? You know, it's like, as opposed to everything being so squirrely and microtonal, it's like you have these like foundational pitches that I think it's restful for the ear and it makes the slid notes have more weight, you know, it's a nice contrast. And I first learned, he did that, this glissando, you know, fretting with the slide. You can hear the frets going by. I first heard that. It's like, what is that? And when I finally <laughs> figured it out, I'm like, yes. So now I'll do a thing where I'll I'll slide with the glissandos and then pull off with the back behind the slide thing. And you can get all these cool, extra little, you know, some extra secret sauce. You know, one thing you said earlier, it's kind of funny. I just, and this is kind of where my brain goes at all the time. You mentioned like bending flat as opposed to, bending sharp and vice yes. versa. You know, I, I've, I always mess around with different, to this day, I'm always messing around with different vibratos and, and different ways of getting it done. Of course. And, and it's, it's, I was, you know, every now and again, I'll listen to, um, I'll, I'll think about Billy Gibbons, his, oh. D, his D string vibrato. You know what I mean? <laughs> Where it sounds like, eh, there's this thing that happens and, and I was messing around and I realized, oh, it's because then I'll do different things where and, and what I'm talking about for, for the listeners out there, when I'm talking about going sharp as opposed to flat, um, you know, if you got your third finger on a D string, like in the key of A, let's say you're at the seventh fret hitting that root note of the A, my in- instinct is to pull it down towards the ground right, and, and then go back and forth. And and that's your kind of grinding that that string into the fretboard as opposed to floating it. If you see Clapton 
or if you see Billy Gibbons, they kind of they kind of go up first. And and the only contact point with the string is the tip of that finger. And even though technically you're doing the same pitches one way or the other, they sound different. Yes. And then yes, I, realized, I, I realized with, with Billy Gibbons that he's a, just an ass hair sharp when he begins. He starts at sharp and then goes down. Ah. And, you, and you get this weird, it just sounds weird. It's hard to explain. But you know what I mean? When he, when he does, like, if you listen to it, like a classic example, it's that intro to like uh, Funky Dogs and Nasty Kings. Like, that note right there. It's got this weird thing. And I realized he just, he started off just an ass hair sharp and then go vibrato down. And that causes it. And that's the stuff for me. It's like, I would rather hear that stuff than a gajillion weedly weedlies and schlickly slackleys. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I love weedly weedlies, but no, that's some minutia right there. That's a, and that's his thing, man. You crack the code again. It's like oh. a tiny little pre-bend. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's exactly. it's harder with fingers, but with slide, I mean, you you know, I fuck with some wide vibrato. I mean, to me, I mean, vibrato could be a half step. A vibrato could be a whole step. Oh you yeah, know, especially if you're going flat you know uh you know why does vibrato have to be so shallow you know right isn't it it interesting though it's like as as we get farther away from some of the original electric you know blues and you know slide players and so on and so forth we always think the vibratos are faster and that the tone is dirtier than it actually is and as it goes along it's like the vibratos are getting wider and the tone is getting dirtier because we perceive it as that it was more than it was back in the day. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> totally. So, I mean, ACDC is a classic example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Man. fascinating. It it's never so... ends, Luther. It never ends. But that, why should it? That's what makes it fun. Oh man, my friends and I talk about this all the time. Like guitar is ever fascinating, you know. Not only is it humbling, it's ever fascinating. There's always something. And man, I've got every guitar is in a different tuning. Like to me, that's just such a beautiful. I'll just pick up the guitar and just, and I don't know what tuning it's in. It might be out of tune and I'll just, you know, tighten it up and just see what happens. It's so, I, I love the, the, uh, what am I trying to say? The element of surprise, you know, when it comes yes. to writing, here's something that changed my life. Maybe not for the best for my technique, but at a certain point at dawn, it was like, wait a minute. I spent like a decade easily more, you know, just like just noodling, practicing, shredding, just playing lead constantly always i mean because i grew up like with the guitar for the practicing musician like steve vai's column you know i had your books and that magazine because guitar player didn't have any real as many columns you know but guitar for the practicing musician had columns man and andy aldehort and steve vai and you like you guys led the way before I mean, shit, man. We were pressing rewind on the tape. We were moving the needles on the records, watching the VHS, I remember it well. yeah. and reading your books, you know. But anyway, anyway, god damn it, what was I talking about? You were you're talking about being inspired by something. Ah, yes, uh, the random element at a certain random point. Element, yes. But at a certain point, I was like, wait a minute, I got to stop this, and I I switched the gear to where every time I pick up my guitar or sit down at the piano. Like, I'm just going to play something. I'm going to write something. I'm just going to play. I'm going to intentionally play something. And it's not, and it'll be random. I'll just pick it up and just play something. And it's like, oh, well, that's the idea for the morning or whatever that is, you know? And as opposed to just 
always just wiggling my fingers and practicing and just like, and you know how it's so fun. It's, you know, to practice some patterns and, but I just play and just create and so, you know, record myself more. And, you know, so many voice memos never get truly used, but it's just another way to reviewing those though. It's fun to go back and listen. I go, Oh, I totally forgot about that. Totally. (laughs) But they, but they don't always turn into a song. You know what I mean? Right. But, uh, but it's another way to approach the guitar, you know, or just sit down at the piano and you're like, just, just play something like make a moment, you know, even if it's just two notes. It's a, it's another right. way to think about it. That really helps me. Absolutely. I have a question. Yes. Before we go. Yes, sir. So for me during quarantine, something the code I cracked was, was fives and sevens. Like, uh, and I just wanted to ask you, how do you think about fives and sevens? And I'm not talking about like seven, eight or five, four, because I'm talking about just groups of accents of in notes. a steady stream of 16th notes. You know, it's such a, it's like such a beautiful way to become intimate with the upbeats and like not just get locked into being so downbeat heavy, you know? Right, do right, you, right. Do you have any, what are your thoughts on fives and sevens? And, well, I, I guess I'm thinking about it when, when you initially said that my, my vision was of something that I saw people do that I didn't really think of before. And that's to do like two notes on one string and three notes on the next, and then repeat that in three octaves. It's like right. one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, and right. then doing that the opposite way. And I had never really thought about doing things like that before. And, um, and I guess for me, it's, it's kind of a cool, um, anything like that to me, it's like, if I just get a shred, it inspires me to you know, utilize it in a way of, of my own. Is that, that's kind of how I always have. If I learn something new that I haven't really thought about before, um, I'll just kind of go, well, that, that's interesting. How, how can I, you know, mutate that into something else? So, you know, I've, I've always, you know, we always kind of tendency to, you know, it's triads and sixes and stuff like that. So, yes. you know, fives and sevens is a little different. You know what I mean? So I, I, I guess I don't really think about them in, as a specific tool. I, it just, it's one of those things that I'll hear and I know that's in the quiver and every now and again, it'll just come. <laughs> yeah. Come yeah. Well, you know, it's funny if you look at Hendrix transcriptions and that's an oxymoron even just to think about, but like right. these crazy groups, you know, like he crams seven notes into one beat or some, you know, bizarre shit. And man, I always pitied the guys that had to try and figure that out. We but, don't think, thankfully I never had to transcribe. I mean, uh, every time I would do stuff, um, I would be able to just write write it in. Basically, when I would transcribe my books, if I had to do it, um, I would do it to the bar line. I didn't. Yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't play it and then have to transcribe it. I would write it to play it. You know what I mean? Right. Because I I just was never that good of a transcriber to to do. Oh, this goes over the bar line. I'm like I mean, I would just pull whatever hair I have left out. Right. <laughs> so. So I, I was free of all that, but I, I did do a thing during, during, um, during COVID when it started to lessen up, it was not this past November, but the, the November before I decided to do an all Hendrix gig. Um, nice. and, I, and, uh, and I've been such a huge Hendrix fan forever, but I, but I never do any Jimmy verbatim. It's just, I, I, I just can't do it. You know, I mean, I could do it, but I, I'm like, what's the point? You know, I remember, uh, there was a buddy of mine's band in town here that used to do 
kind of, you know, Hendrix and Cream and ZZ Top. And, and, and their thing was creating, trying to do it exactly off the record. And I understood it from a commercial point of view. And, it, and it's definitely, um, you know, it's not a small challenge to be able to do that. But to me, it kind of went against what that music was all about. You know right. what I mean? It's, it's like it was all, Hendrix never played the same thing twice, right? Yeah. So I wanted to do my impressions of of those particular songs and certain songs we would do a little bit closer to the arrangement as the original, but I took liberties with melodic content with chords and so on and so forth. Uh, and it was, and it, and it was a blast, but it was, it was very interesting to, you know, cause I'm sure you're the same way you've heard these Hendrix songs forever. And you might've taken like a chord or a lick from a Hendrix tune. Sometimes you learn them all, but most of the time you did it. But when you have to sit down and learn them, and then tr- figure out how to try to reinterpret them in a way. Uh, man, that was a good exercise. You know what I mean? Man. You know, quickly, uh, you spoke to something. There's a joy in not learning some music, you know? Yes. It's like when you learn it, it takes the magic away sometimes. Sometimes, not always, but there's definitely Allman Brothers stuff, Jimi Hendrix stuff. T- I mean, I, I enjoy not learning it and just enjoying it. Just as a as a listener, you know, of course you can hear, you're like, oh, okay, well, he's, you know, he's playing third position or whatever. You know, there's guitar things that you recognize your ear does. Right. You know, like, oh, he's on the, he's on the D string at the seventh fret, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You just recognize those timbers of the instrument. But it's so fun. Listen, like drifting, you know, oh, right. man, oh, whoa. I, I, I figured that one out. As I'd listened to that song since I was... In the oh. single digits, and I finally just figured it out and came up with a cool little arrangement. It's like, God, that was a blast. <laughs> I would love to hear you play Drifting Man. That's one of my favorite all-time songs of oh, all time. What a great... T- you know, when I heard... Um, oh, I'm trying to think who, who redid it. The guy that played the resonator guitar that died young. Who was- oh, really? Keith? Yes. Whoa, I have to go for that. I'd love to hear him do that. His yeah, daughter yeah. is so talented. I love her. Um. Man, oh man! Hendrix. Yeah, he does. A, he does a version of it that's pretty, pretty awesome. You know, Hendrix, you know, I'm sorry, he had his solos had like melodic landmarks, you know, that I love. I find that so fascinating. There's certain licks that on the live versions he would always come back to, you know, be it Voodoo Child's Light Return or right. or Red House. You know, there's they were all wildly different, but each one had their certain uh, melodic statements. Ooh, like the beginning of Spanish Castle Magic, you know, or Oh, you know, I, I like, you know, I want to hit those marks if I can, you know. And it's funny because like doing the Hendrix experience tours or whatever, you can hear the cats that that, that didn't go that deep into Hendrix because they never hit those. You know right. what I mean? Right. Because I think that's part of the composition as much as the lyrics or the, you know, or the chord progression is like Hendrix had these melodic statements in the instrumental sections that right. were valid, you know. No doubt about it. You know, I was just going to tell you that one of the things, I don't know if you've had a chance to do this, but you know, the like 1970, like the last European tour, there's, you know, I'm listening to the Hendrix stuff and there's some really sad moments where you're like, oh my God, would he, would he have just like fizzled out? You know what I mean? And then you're like, ah, but then there's some moments where it's really, but he just sounds so bummed, you know, is talking between the songs and Mitch Mitchell's dropping beats left and right. And you're like, what the fuck is going on? It's like, did he just not have it anymore? And then they, they unearthed one of the guys that was playing with Eric Burden at Ronnie Scott's, like the night before he died recorded when Hendrix sat in and it was that clean strat doing that. And he's playing like the changes 
of um, they're doing like the Stormy Monday Almond Brothers changes from the Fillmore with the minor setting, and Hendrix playing over that shit clean through a twin. You're like, oh, oh no, he still had it. So if you can find, just go on YouTube and just go like, you know, Hendrix, uh, Ronnie Scott, Ronnie Scott's or or Eric Burton, and you can hear him playing, and it's that clean Hendrix stuff. They all man, it's it's a a glorious thing. Oh man, it's a glorious thing. Of course he did. He was so bummed out. He was so burned out, man. He looked so old to be so, I mean, Dwayne Allman too, like those cats, they burn so hard and so bright, you know? Isn't that, isn't that crazy how you look at those pictures and you're like, these guys are in their 30s. And you're like, nope, they're 24. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Hendrix looks like an old man and later on. Right. It's uh, crazy. And the, back to the Allman Brothers, man, that small group of like-minded young men, I mean, it's so powerful what they created, man. And the family tree of the Almond Brothers is just branched out in the a forest, you know? Right. And um, uh, well, one of the a, things you mentioned earlier, too, about never really figuring all this stuff out. When I when I was getting ready for the for the game, when I first talked to Devin, he's like, well, what yeah. tune? If you had to pick one tune that you could play, what would it be? And I just, I, without even thinking, I just said a memory of Elizabeth Reed, right? So I... um. I started delving in it because I've always, whenever I've played that song, I've always played the Dickie part mm-hmm. and never knew what the harmony was. Right. And, uh, and so I started, I was like, that harmony is counterintuitive. Like how I would have <laughs> heard the harmony is like different. And so it, it meant, it, you know, getting under the roof of that song was really fascinating. Yes. And I realized that that, and then I started doing it with all the songs and yeah. realizing I had no idea that those were the, were the parts. I've been playing these songs for decades but then again, I was always just doing it at jam. And they weren't part of our repertoire. You know, if I did Jessica, I did Dickie's part. I didn't worry about the harmony. You know what I mean? I always just did the one part. But when you're realizing, oh, I got to do something. This, you know, Dwayne's, Dwayne Betts is probably going to do the other part. So I got to learn this part. And man, that was that was fascinating. I know you like you played the Jessica thing that one time, probably the for the first thing you nailed it, all the different harmonies for that. Ooh. I mean, that is some crazy shit. Thankfully, I'd been shedding. I'd never learned Jessica ever in my life. And, and and as soon as Devin reached out, I started shedding Jessica slowly but surely, a little bit every day. And I was studying Johnny. I was studying uh, Dwayne and Johnny's, like the Almond Betts band version. Right. And, uh, oh, man. I mean, they are so tight. And you're talking about phrasing, note duration, vibrato. I mean, those cats are in sync. It's right. sick. And um, so anyway, and then the second to last gig of the tour for me, all of a sudden there's Jessica. I'm like, oh my God, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would have had to have bailed if I hadn't been shedding it. But it's funny. I was the same way, man. But when you're playing with Dwayne, you got to, you got to uh, play the other part, you know, and those harmonies, man, there's no rhyme or reason to the early Dwayne and Dickie harmonies, man. And I mean, a lot of it clashes. You know, yeah. I mean, they go from thirds to fourths to fifths to seconds. You know, I mean, exactly. This it's just feeling. It's just, they're just really going on a vibe and and going on position. You know, and just I don't think they. But man, uh, and then later studying the stuff like Ramblin' Man. Like there's that one line before the solo of Ramblin' yep. Man where it's three guitars and it's all Yeah. Man, I studied those. There's some hillbilly fiddle genius in there. Right. Like, and then there's no rhyme or reason, but it's so beautiful the way it fits together. Man, Dickie by himself is a, what a composer, dude. Oh, no Dickie doubt. Yes. Oh. No doubt. Oh, 
for me, the challenge was I grew up playing all my brother's stuff like Blue Skies or Elizabeth Reed, both in particular, uh, in a trio playing double stops. Same here. Exactly. You know? Same here. And so most of it I was playing wrong. I Same interpreted here. it wrong. And but then just breaking it apart so hard. Yeah, like when we were talking about Blue Sky, and I realized I always heard that intro. Every time I'd play it, I'd play with double stops. I've been a trio. And then you're listening to it. It's like, no, Dickie's doing some kind of chordal thing, and Dwayne's doing the bird. No idea. It's, it's I mean, I stuff. probably did have the idea when I first listened to it, but you know, you're so busy just interpreting it in the moment. Hey, let's do Blue Sky. Okay, I think it goes something like this. And then you just, you know, do it on the spot. But when you actually have to go under the hood and learn it, man, it's. Man, you sounded great. Thing. Man, I, I don't remember what all you, you were jamming on, but I know whipping posts, man. You were tearing that out, man. That oh, was thanks. really I played whip posts a couple of times. It was hard. That's not my uh like I'm not good at playing at the highest velocity. Like I know people who like underpowered amps and they don't mind if they're not super loud. I have to have headroom. I don't have a lot of strength in my hands. My hands are I'm double jointed and um, just I play light and loose and I have to have headroom and I very rarely like really dig in, you know, but uh, so like whipping post for me is hard because like the whole band is on a pin. Yeah, it's, it's going. going. Well, what's interesting about that is that so so when Devin and I first talked, he's like, well, let's do um, Memory Elizabeth Reed. Um, no one left to run with anymore. Uh, dreams and uh, keep on smiling. Yeah. And then, and then, and then when I showed up, I, you know, I was thinking, well, should I bring my Gibsons? And I thought, no, if I'm just d doing me, I should just bring my reverends. Like I would normally play doing my gig. I mean, that's, I had to make up my mind. And I, tr I tried to reach out to Devin before the thing and we were like playing phone tag and we never did. So I just, I just had to make a judgment call. I thought, fuck it. I'm just going to bring my reverends and be, be done with it. So, um, and I remember he said, well, the first day of the tour that you're on, you know, sound checks kind of yours to get comfy and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, cool. I'm not going to worry about it. We'll figure it all out. So I show up and, 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 and that day, you know, I get into Nashville at about 11, 11 o'clock in the morning. You know, I, I see the tour because we're staying right around the corner from the Ryman, Ryman and I see the tour bus is already there. So I just texted him a little bit after 11, just saying, hey, FYI, I'm around the corner. Let me know when you want me to stop over and we can figure out what tunes we're doing and so on and so forth. Well, four o'clock in the afternoon rolls around. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, should I just come over there? You know? And so I should And they're up. like, nah, and don't like, worry yeah. about it. He's like, yeah, come on over. We'll figure it out. So I come in and I got my guitars and I go in and, you know, Devin's as nice as pie, starts introducing me to everybody. And he's like, um, well, what songs did I tell you to learn? And I said, well, memory Elizabeth Reed. He goes, yeah, we're not doing that one. I'm like, oh, fuck me. And then, and, and then um, um, he's like, what, what guitars did you bring? And I said, uh, well, I brought my reverence. He's like, yeah, this, <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is really sponsored by Gibson. Do you mind playing at Gibson? I was like, no, I don't like, mind. But, you know, literally I literally sponsored by Gibson. There's a huge backdrop. Right. The crowd is full of Gibson people from Nashville. Yeah, I'm like, I, I guess I'll be playing at Gibson. <laughs> Had I known, I would have brought my own, you know, but right. So I'm like, okay, we'll figure it out. And then, so one thing led to another. So I ended up, it's, Allison. So it was like, okay, well, let's have you play on whipping post. Well, luckily I've played whipping post a thousand times. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then, and then, and then, uh, uh, JD Simon pulls me off the side. He's like, you always play the low parts. Yeah. Dwayne, Dwayne always does all the fills. I'm like, yeah. Okay. That was all me. Right. Oh, that I was you that you told that. me that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Oh dude. We got to, we got to work together. 
Yes. Yes. So once, once I figured that, I was like, okay, all right, all right, we'll figure that out. So, so then, um, yeah, just went out there and did the, the first night I was, I was like, I, you know, I did the, the solo and I, I thought it was, I, you know, I, I built it up and I brought it back down, but it really wasn't all that long. And I was like, well, it didn't need to be, it just felt right. You know what I mean? Right. But then, right. But, the, but then my wife was so funny. She's like, why are you always so nice? Just take your time and just blow the doors off the place. I'm like, uh, all right, I'm like, honey, okay. <laughs> so then the, the second night I was like, okay, well maybe I'll, I'll take my time a little bit more. And that was fun too. Both, but I had fun doing both doing it both ways, you know? Great. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. And then, but but it was so funny. So the last night rolls around and that's when JD was gone. So it was just you and me and Dwayne figuring out what tunes to do. And during soundcheck, I was like, man, I would just, I would just give my left nut to do, to do Statesboro blues. But you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to ask, you know what I mean? And all of a sudden you texted and said, here's the set list. Would you mind doing Statesboro Blues? I'm like, yes, there is a God. I figured you wanted to. I mean, it, we were, you know, it was fun switching it out. You know, like Dreams is the one everybody fights over, you know. Oh, well, you you annihilated on Dreams. Oh, it just man. sounded so good. I mean, all the stuff sounded great. But that, that last night, especially, you went off into some otherworldly activities. It was it was a beautiful thing. That was so much fun. I got to tell you, that was such a blast. I had so it much was. fun. Yeah. You know, it really and, there's no, was. and there's no dick measuring. It's like everyone does their thing. They go out there and they express themselves. It's not like, oh, hey, oh, you know what oh, I mean? Oh, no. It's just all, it's just glorious. There, I just, there was no, there was no whiff of fuckery. <laughs> no, no, it's good people, man. And and it's good. You, you've heard the, the Dwayne Allman radio interview where he's high on the radio. Oh, have yeah. You ever heard that? I he's have. Like, talking about Dickie Betts and how challenging it was for him, you know, to like Dickie Betts does not make it easy for me. And he's like, you know, you're looking in my eyes and checking them chops, you know? Right. <laughs> and when Devin looks in my eyes on stage, you know, it's like, wow. He's like looking in them eyes and checking them chops, you know? Right. And then, um, uh, and then Dwayne, he's such a gentleman, man. Like he will stand there and tear the roof off. And then he's such a gentleman. He'll build the solo back down and then play something like utterly ridiculous, like cleanse the palate, you know, right. and it's so cool. And then pass it over, you know, like on dreams in particular, this is the third, you know, cause Devin will take one. Then, Dwayne and then the guest will take one. And uh and Dwayne is such a gentleman. Colonel Bruce Hampton told me that um um Derek Chucks is of the angel race, right? Ah. I believe I believe Colonel Bruce. My dad used to say that Spooner Oldham was an angel, and I believe that. So they're of the angel race. Well, if Derek is an angel, you know, Dwayne Betts is a king among men, man. He's just so smooth, man. I mean, he's got Dwayne's smooth suave style with his dad's aggression and and he and you know compositional knowledge of the music and then he also does jerry garcia better than anybody else but he he is himself and when he sings those he's singing crazy beautiful i just love Dwayne so much man but we have to tell the story man so so you you borrowed Devin's guitar and then you're like, yo, I can't play this guitar. The action's too too low, you know. So it's right. like, well, play mine, you know. And um, and then and the song. There's no time in between songs. That show moves really fast. Right. And man, I got caught with my nuts hanging out a couple of times. Like I fucked up whipping pose twice because the bass starts immediately and then the part that we were playing comes in two bars in. Yeah, that happened to be the twice. second night. Yeah, it sucks, man. And um, so anyway, so <laughs> uh, you know, 
I'm not as tall as you are by any stretch of imagination. But anyway, I walk on stage and I'm like uptight. I'm like, okay, let's do it. And you hand me my guitar and there's no strap. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I felt so bad. I was like, man, why did I say that? But I was like, where's my strap? <laughs> yeah. Because well, well, it's so funny because when, when people borrow my guitar, uh, they'll always change the strap. And then I get it. And I'm like, what the fuck am I supposed to do? So I wanted to make sure that I brought my own strap out so that I wouldn't change your height on you. Totally so I had to do the guitar and then I grabbed you the strap, but you didn't, you didn't see the strap right away. And I was like, Oh, I got the strap for you. And you're like, oh. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I felt so bad. Like, oh, no, man. I, I felt bad. And then you came off stage and I'm like, Oh, I'm so sorry. And you're like, no, I feel it was just, it was one of those, it was humorous. But yeah, uh. it is stressful. I mean, it was a little stressful to figure out because we were using the same amp and then, you know, Jackson, was being really nice, Jackson Stone. Oh, yeah. You know, he was, you know, because I, I, I used my, that was the other thing, you know, people always ask, you know, what do you do for amps and such and thing? Why didn't you have your caulk amp? You know, I'm like, well, they were using super reverbs and I've used super reverbs for years. Yeah. And I've definitely played supers where I just crank them and go, but I've got to be used to the amp in order to really trust it. You know what I mean? Yes. So typically what I'll do is I'll just use my Gristle King pedal, which is a clean boost and an overdrive, and I'll just set the amp like at four and then flatten the EQ with a little bit of reverb. And then I know I'll get a clean sound and an overdrive sound that I can deal with. So that was the other aspect too, is that we had to make sure that we changed the amp sounds from your sound to my sound and switch the guitar and the straps. It was just, but you know, after one night we, we kind of had it down. Oh yeah. We nailed it, man. And once we knew what time it was, you know, it was all good. It's so funny. Uh, it's so great to hang out, man. I'm so glad to meet you after all these years. Like I said, Dude, I grew up on your books, man. There was so little content for our generation, man. And it was like secret, secrets of the cave, like rock and roll knowledge. Well, you know what's so fun, fun about that stuff? Well, see, initially, I mean, I never thought in a million years of writing any guitar instructional stuff. I mean, I did go to school for music, but as I always joke, I really majored in beer at the time. <laughs> I, you know, all I really want, I, I wanted to know how to be, you know, I wanted to know how to, to play over changes. I didn't want to, you know, even though it was a jazz guitar course, you know, that I was doing, I mean, I wanted to know how to play. I, I had no desire to learn like every standard and right. have a, have a ES-175 with flat wound strings into a polytone amp with a big... I love that sound, but... Which, which I do, but at the time I was like, that's not my thing. I just want to know how to play over changes. And I also wanted to be able to read and write music at some level of proficiency which more or less happened. I mean, I wasn't the greatest student, but what happened to me is like, you know, I was just trying to do my own band forever and then uh, got married and had kids. And then I was like, okay, well, uh, now you need to make some money. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and at the time, you know, um, anyway, so I, I kind of fell into the, the Hal Leonard thing, but I think the one thing that helped was that I wasn't coming at it from a point of view of, of someone who was always in the instruction. I was coming from more of a player's point of view and how to make that more accessible. And yes. ho hopefully that came through in the it publication. It did, man. It did. Like you and Andy and, and Steve Vai and Tablature, you know, it's like, uh, you made it accessible. Because, you know, so many music teachers on any instrument, for some reason, they make it overly complicated, you know? And music can be such a simple a combination of simple formulas, you know? Yes. There are easy ways to go about it. Absolutely. No doubt about it. Well, thank you, my friend. Well, thank you. Well, listen, <laughs> we got to get, get together again soon. This has been too much fun, and it was so much yes. fun playing. 
Hopefully we'll do some more of this almond brothering next year. That would be so awesome. I sure hope so, man. It's, it's such a dream come true. I just love playing that music with those people. It's a blast. I hope to see you there, my friend. All right. Well, listen, thanks so much for tuning in. Have a happy new year and uh, hopefully see you sooner than later. All right on. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. We absolutely appreciate you caring and checking out these podcasts. We certainly have a good time doing them. Again, it's brought to you by our friends at Wildwood Guitars in Louisville, Colorado. Don't be afraid to go to wildwoodguitars.com. Check out what they have going on. I actually go there every night and visit their new arrivals page. It's kind of a kind of an illness, really. And of course, our friends at Fishman Transducers, fishman.com, making all the greatest accoutrements for your stringed instruments. Stay tuned for more. Greg Koch here. Thanks so much for tuning in.